So I'd like to tell some stories, stories about stories. The title of this talk is History, Story, Mystery. And I'd like to begin with a story from the time of the Buddha, from what's known as the Pali Canon, a collection of stories, discourses, reflections uh, featuring the Buddha and their contemporaries. And this is a story of the Buddha not replying to a question and what happens next. So it features someone called Vachagota, described as a wanderer. And Vachagota features a few times in the stories of the Pali Canon, uh, sometimes coming up and asking, uh, yeah, curious and insistent questions about big things. So the wanderer of Achagota comes up to the Buddha, exchange greetings with them. When the greetings and polite conversation were over, he sat down to one side and said to the Buddha, Master Gotama, Gotama is a sort of family name, clan name of the Buddha, does the self survive? But when he said this, the Buddha was silent. Then does the self not survive. But for a second time, the Buddha kept silent. Then the wanderer of Ajagata got up from his seat and left. Maybe we can resonate with him. <laughs> the teacher doesn't say anything. He keep asking, still nothing. <laughs> Maybe want to give some feedback. And then not long after Vajagata had left, Venerable Ananda, and Ananda is cousin of the Buddha and the Buddha's companion and attendant for many decades of their life, till their death. The Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, Sir, why didn't you answer Vajagata's question? And the Buddha replies, Ananda, when Vajagata asked me whether the self survives, if I had answered that, the self survives, I would have been siding with those who are eternalists, those who believe that there's an eternal, ever-changing, fixed self that persists in this life and the next life, etc. When Vachagota asked me whether the self does not survive, if I had answered that the self does not survive, I would have been siding with those who are annihilationists. We maybe think there's nothing, nothing, nowhere, it's all, yeah, nihilists. When Vajagata asked me whether the self survives, if I had answered that the self survives, would that have helped give rise to the knowledge that all things are not self? No, sir, says Ananda. When Vajagata asked me whether the self does not survive, if I had answered that the self does not survive, Vajagata, who is already confused, we may identify with him, would have got even more confused, thinking, it seems that the self that I once had no longer survives. So perhaps we can relate to this questioning. Perhaps these kinds of questions have arisen for us. What am I? Who am I? What is this? Am I okay? Is this okay? Where is it all going? 
So this question of the self surviving or, you know, the self or not surviving is, um, we could also say that this is about our stories of self, about our stories of identity, of who we are, of who we aren't, etc. Nowhere, in fact, in the early Buddhist teachings, the Pali Canon, does the Buddha ever try to define what a person or a self is. Often there's, you know, not an answer at all, as in the case of Vachagota, or there's a kind of, yeah, just no definition really. Why is this? So the Buddha says in many different places that puzzling over the metaphysics of the self, the sense of, you know, is it eternal or not? What is it and how is it? It pulls us away from what really matters and from the question, what can I do right now that will lead to lasting well-being and happiness? So this points to a very, in a way, pragmatic aspect of these teachings. What leads towards dukkha, and satisfactoriness, reactivity, and what leads away from that? What leads, in fact, to niroda, to unbinding, to loosening, to relinquishing, to liberation? So in exploring and trying to comprehend self and not self, we can investigate what lies within our control and what lies beyond our control. So the Buddha argues, if we have no control over something, can it really be part of us? And often what he refers to in this context and what is often referred to again and again in these teachings is what is called the five aggregates, another one of these lists. And sometimes, you know, when I'm here on retreat, I have a moment of, you know, what on earth is it all for? And I'll go and go to the library and, you know, open one of the big books, you know, the shelves of them, of the discourses, like longing for some kind of nutshell answer. And often I open it randomly and it's the five aggregates. And I have to say, part of me is like, oh no, not the five aggregates again. Is that all they're ever going to go on about? <coughs> and there's a, a bit of a weariness of this. But very often, you know, when, when someone comes to the Buddha and says, you know, I want the nutshell, you know, sometimes it's, it's I'm on the point of death or, you know, I'm very ill or please condense the teachings. The Buddha says, contemplate these five aggregates, these five clinging aggregates that are often referred to, khandhas or skandhas in Pali and Sanskrit. So this is just the way in that kind of particular culture, in that you know, time, um, the Buddha and their contemporaries kind of sort of broke things down, broke experience down. Um, so, firstly, form, the body. Secondly, uh, sankharas, often translated as mental fabrications, thoughts, habit patterns, feelings of, of pleasure, of 
our pain of neither the kind of things that pull and push us through the sense doors, uh, perception and consciousness. And we start out sometimes believing that we have a modicum of control over these, which of course leads us to identify with them. My body, it's like this, and I recognize this, I look in the mirror, oh yeah, there I am. And, but through time and through practice, we began to fathom how illusory that control is and how unreliable all these aggregates are. The things that we cling to, oh, this is me, yes, yeah, and same, same old thought, same old this, same old that. But really, do we have all that much control? Did you wake up this morning planning to be agitated at 11.30 a.m. or restless at 2.45 or racked with guilt at 3.19 or having intense shoulder pain at 2.45 or having a moment of the sun shining in walking meditation and oh, this is a wonderful place. Wonderful teachers, I'm a great meditator, I've really cracked this. I'm, and then, of course, what arises on that, this, this perpanturing proliferation. I'm such a great meditator, I should do this more often. In fact, maybe I should go on a longer retreat. I've heard there's a really nice cottage in Northumberland. Uh, I could see if it's available, and maybe you know I should go in September, and I could see if my partner wants to come. I mean, she's not really into meditation, but maybe on this occasion, and we can see how we've built this, you know, fabulous, uh, constructed story um, out of a moment of, oh, this is going well. <laughs> We're suddenly on a completely different retreat in the future. There we are. Or there's a moment of, Oh, it's painful, it's difficult, I can't do this. This is a terrible place. The people are terrible, the teachers are terrible. I'm a lousy meditator. I really shouldn't have come here, I should have done something else. You know, there's another sense of self that is being built and being constructed. And, of course, co it's co-arising with conditions. You know, with the moment of pain or the moment of oh, loveliness this kind of constellation, this solidifying around I'm this, I'm that way, I'm going to be like this in the future or you know how it is, I was like this in the past. In the moments when we recognize and we can put these solidifying tendencies down there's a possibility of dismantling from the unskillful sense of self that really produces dukkha, suffering. And this is just woven into the impermanence, you know, in the middle of this kind of pipe dream of me on the solitary meditation retreat or, you know, having dragged my partner along to this wonderful cottage in Northumberland and there's a moment of, ah, oh, it's not real. And that sense of the impermanence of that moment really comes into view. And what I have built up, constructed on the myth of things being continuous and solid. When we can drop that kind of identification solidifying, it can be like 
putting down an overwhelming and sometimes often pointless burden that can open up a space of enormous relief. So how do we square our embodiment, our embodied lived experience, including our lived experience of different identities? How do we square this with not-self, with this exploration of how self arises and passes? Is there a possibility of taking ourselves and our stories of self more lightly in the service of liberation? And yet, really standing for the stories that matter, the stories that are important. So we come on to the history part, the histories, the herstories, the theirstories. And I have to confess that I am a history nerd. I love history and in my late teens I had a real ambition to be an archaeologist and I studied ancient history and it's still a real love and passion of mine. So I want to tell you three stories uh, about archaeology actually and about uh, yeah, the kinds of things that archaeologists discover. So the first story. In 2009, a team of archaeologists arrived at a site in a neighborhood of Modena, Italy, where construction workers had unearthed a cemetery dating back 1,500 years. There were 11 graves, but one of them was not like the others. Instead of a single skeleton, tomb 16 contained two skeletons, and they were holding hands. Here's the demonstration of how love between a man and a woman can really be eternal, wrote the local press. They were instantly dubbed the lovers of Modena. And they were celebrated and extolled. And for a decade, this assumption about the lovers remained unchallenged. Then in 2019, archaeologists decided to try a newly available technique for determining the sex of human remains. And to their surprise, the lovers were both male. The pair suddenly became potential evidence of a 5th century same-sex relationship. Now, you may have heard this story before. It came out a few years ago. And I was, I was researching it. I found the, the Guardian piece that was written about it, the Guardian, the UK newspaper. And they had this subheading. You know, even though they were kind of you know, uh, writing about the fact that this was actually, they discovered this new thing about these skeletons, the subheading read, could they have been siblings or cousins <laughs> or soldiers who died together? I thought, right there, <laughs> we have some assumptions. They didn't say this when they thought it was a heterosexual couple. So anyway, so story number two. In 2017, new evidence emerged about a skeleton found in a Viking grave full of weapons in Birka, Sweden. The grave had been presumed to contain a man, but when the DNA was tested, it showed that the Birka Viking was clearly female. But the notion of a female warrior did not fit with existing ideas about the Vikings. According to convention, weaponry belonged with men and jewelry belonged with women. 
If this skeleton was a woman, some argued, then the warrior status should be re-evaluated. But the lead researcher was baffled and said everyone was fine with the warrior interpretation when the skeleton was thought to be a man. This cannot change just because we find out it's a woman. So story three, another grave, a thousand-year-old grave in Finland. And again, DNA analysis suggests that non-binary people were not only accepted but respected members of their communities. This DNA analysis of remains in a late Iron Age grave shows that the person may have been a high-status non-binary person with XXY chromosomes or Kleinfelter syndrome. The grave contained jewelry, oval brooches, and woolen clothing, suggesting the dead person was dressed in a typical feminine costume of the era, but the grave also contained swords and accoutrements more often associated with masculinity. So I am a history and archaeology nerd, but I do, and <laughs> I do love that these stories shift our views and perspectives and narratives about the past and maybe also about the present. That there's a kind of realigning, you know, particularly when, you know, I studied history and archaeology and there was so, well, no, <laughs> no kind of reference to queer people existing in history. I mean, at that time, very, very little interest or research about, you know, women's history or history and, you know, me kind of constantly going, but what about the... And, and, and then, you know, the, the professors and teachers saying, well, there's no evidence, there's no evidence. But here we have the evidence, and to me there's a kind of a wonderful shift in orientation, a, pos a shift in perspective that is just really empowering. We are here, we have always been here. And this stream of history continues through us and these stories are important to be told. And what we are told, what we tell ourselves about the past and the present is part of how we construct the world and ourselves and each other. And sometimes, you know, how we construct this, we can see how it contributes to feeling alone or isolated. The views and assumptions, external and internalized, of you know, racism, of homophobia, transphobia, queerphobia, sexism, can really get co-opted and manipulated by vibhava tanha, Pali words for an unquenchable thirst to not exist. Which you know, it's it goes side by side with the bhava tanha, so that uh, the story of. Um, you know, the kind of becoming the wonderful meditator who's on this long retreat, that kind of thirst to become, to be. And here we have the vibhavatana, which is, you know, to not exist, the denial of, of, uh, of becoming, the denial of self. So probably all of us know in some way or another that this sense of not existing is sometimes reinforced by the collective and cultural habit patterns we find surrounding us. And you know, often as queer people, we find ourselves only when we're being persecuted, when there's difficulty, and we have to read between the lines, trying to reconstruct a lost past. And you know, more and more we need to find ways of celebrating 
not only the surviving, but the thriving, the resilience, the courage, the love, the determination, all those who've gone before us and who've made it possible for us to be here. And also our role, our story, if you like, as good ancestors, what are we making possible for those who come after us? You know, not only as queer people, but just as human beings living on the planet in these times, these extraordinarily challenging, difficult times, what do we want to leave behind? So this sensing and imagining and having solid evidence for being embedded in a stream of ancestry with a continuity of expression is empowering and it's important. And there are also personal stories that need to be told, that need to be expressed for healing, for more possibilities to arrive. Mfo Tutu, the daughter of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who is a uh, queer activist and a Christian um, pastor. In the book of Forgiveness, she speaks really movingly about how stories need to be told and sometimes told again and again before it's possible for there to be a moving on, a healing, a reconciliation and the possibility of forgiveness. And also, and also, how do we honor our own and our collective histories and stories that we recognize as practice deepens? At the same time as recognizing how when those stories start to solidify, they can become limitations. So I want to speak a little bit about a story about a woodpecker. Uh, and this happened uh, several years ago when I was on retreat here at Gaia House, uh, doing walking meditation in the garden out here, going back and forth, back and forth. And I heard the sound in the tree above me, tock, 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 tock. Walking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, tock, 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 tock thought arises, oh, it's a woodpecker, it's a woodpecker. And we're walking back and forth, but then you know, the mind proliferating and going off as it does. Oh, you know, it's great, I recognize that woodpecker. I think it's a, it's probably a greater spotted woodpecker. Uh, I recognize it, we have some at home and, you know, a bit of sort of this uh, uh, proliferation and uh, filling out of the the, the self that is the good bird watcher. So I'm, I'm not, I'm really not a twitcher, um, a, you know, bird watcher. Um, but, you know, part of me likes to think that I am sometimes. So there was a bit of a, oh, that's a greater spotted woodpecker. And a bit of kind of, ah, oh, that's good, I've recognized that. And you know, maybe I'll, I could go and write a note to somebody and say, I've seen a greater spotted woodpecker in the garden. and. Oh, but I'm on a silent retreat, maybe that work. But maybe the coordinators would really like to know that I've been walking and I've seen a great spotted woodpecker and it was really wonderful and I could write it down somewhere. You know how it goes, the story of self, the story of the good, whatever it is. So I walk back and forth, it's going like this. So. 
And after a while I think, oh, I'll, I'll just look up into the tree and, you know, see the woodpecker. So I look up into the tree. It's not a woodpecker. It's a great tit. I'm like astonished. There's a moment of kind of a sort of fracturing of the good bird watcher, the excellent bird watcher self that has come into being and is faced with this reality of this is not a woodpecker. And there's a kind of a sense of crumbling. You know, some of this I thought about, you know, at the time, it maybe didn't have, you know, all that much awareness, but a sense of crumbling of like, oh, okay. We're not such a great bird watcher. Maybe I'm a terrible bird watcher, in fact, and I have no idea. But in that moment, co-arising with all of this, the bird and the sound, everything, what came into being, interestingly enough, and there's a certain amount of, of almost shame in admitting this, what came into being was the one who uh, had found a new species of bird. <laughs> a great tit who behaves like a woodpecker. <laughs> and I started to congratulate myself <laughs> for having made this amazing discovery here in the grounds of Guy House, probably for the first time on the planet. Maybe I should make a record of it and go and tell someone and, you know, <laughs> all of that happening. And then I realized, oh, you know, some of this, and then that kind of came crumbling down, that maybe I didn't need to be this pioneering new species finder in the world. I'll come back to this woodpecker slash great tit later. So this... You know, this malleability of self that we can see here sometimes when things settle and calm and we begin to see the fluidity, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves, they can be quite ephemeral sometimes. And they can really be creatively engaged with. Pascal Eau Claire, wonderful uh, queer Canadian Dharma teacher whose talks I love to listen to and I feel he's a kind of pioneering figure in this realm of queer dharma. He speaks about it in this way. He speaks about the flickering of self, the flickering of identities. And sometimes it's really like that. You can see the momentariness, how it comes and goes. And how it, it really co-arises with, you know, with others and with the world we find ourselves in. That you know, we have particular functions and roles and these co-arise depending on conditions. So, you know, I've had this experience sometimes of coming back from retreat and um, talking to my beloved wife, Fiona, and saying, you know, starting on a bit of a kind of, well, what you really need to understand that it's all about Paticca Samuppada, dependent arising and the 12 links of dependent origination. And I'm kind of going on like this and suddenly I hear the sounds of gentle snoring. And I realize that, you know, I've tried to kind of bring this sort of Dharma person into, you know, bring it back home. And, you know, Fiona is, you know, interested in Buddhism and meditation, but it's not her thing really. And yet here I am with this kind of, you know, this, this sort of Dharma self that's, you know, arisen and, and, and wants to kind of have an audience and really, it's really like clashes with the conditions there, which is 
which are different. So context is really important for all of this. You know, and in, in another context, in terms of identity, in terms of queer identity, um, sometimes uh, my friends from the uh, queer asylum-seeking and refugee community ask me to write letters of support as part of making their case to the Home Office that they are fleeing persecution because of sexual orientation and gender identity. And this is part of, you know, in this system, which in my view is inherently racist, homophobic and transphobic, uh, part of the long journey to prove one's credibility. Lots of different kinds of evidence. But something that I am often asked to do is to write a letter to say, yes, I believe this person. So as I address the Home Office in my letter, there's no way that I'm going to write something like, well, identity is impermanent and, you know, queerness comes and goes. I'm not going to write that. I'm not going to say that. I am going to pull out, and I do pull out, all my ultra-lesbian credentials from time immemorial to say, this is why you can believe me and this is why you can believe my witness statement. When I stand up in the... Uh, Immigration Tribunal Court, I'm not going to say to the judge, well, you know, self and not self and everything is empty and, you know, that's not going to help. That is really not going to help. It goes back to what the Buddha says about what leads to well-being. My well-being, the well-being of others. What can I do right now? that will lead to lasting well-being and happiness. And in that context, in that situation, I am going to do my best to stand up, yes, for this identity and for this, for my and for their credibility. So sometimes we do need to stand up for rights and recognition of our own and other people's stories with a great deal of fierce compassion. Context is a lot. Maybe context is everything. And yet these stories, these stories of self, what stories have you woven about yourself today? What stories have you believed about yourself, about others? It's so important to remember that this is all interwoven, codependently arisen. You know, we arise here in our function as queer Dharma teachers, you know, in this moment, dependently arising with all of you also here. This talk and as I speak, dependently arising, depending on conditions, these conditions, those conditions, all of our conditions together. When I used to come here on retreat, I think I had a kind of story that the, the teachers sort of existed here, somewhere in Gaia House, in some kind of sort of, I don't know, cupboard somewhere. <laughs> and that they got wheeled out. And that, you know, they lived in this world where you ate soup at 5.30 and, you know, all these kind of conditions. And it took actually quite a while for me to realize that they 
they also had homes to go to and, um, you know, cats and nephews and nieces and other things to do and places to go and stresses and families and, you know, all of it. And, yeah, that, that co-arising, you know, the teacher function here co-arising with the retreatants and the retreatants co-arising with the teacher. Perhaps you've seen some of the things that the stories that have arisen for you, you know, the, the good meditator, the terrible meditator, the one who uh, has, is sweeping the floor better than anybody has ever swept the floor of a guy house. And believe me, I have inhabited that story. And I inhabited it so well that someone actually came past and said, oh, you're doing a great job. And I was like, oh my God, I've just realized that this is a story I'm telling myself and I'm getting this reinforcement. So, you know, there's such an inherent unreliability and impermanence to all of these. And we find this, this fixed shape taking, taking form. What arises often is, this, is the judgment. You know, good, bad, better than, worse than, same as. And freedom is lost. Possibilities are lost. To quote... Um, a trans teacher called River Shannon who uh, wrote a piece in Tricycle Buddhist magazine recently. To awaken in this body and as this body is also the basis for recognizing the self, not as something to cast aside or move beyond, but as an aspect of our dynamic, flowing and relational life. Dynamic flowing, relational. So we come to mystery. And I mean mystery not as a kind of airy fairy thing up here, but as a real embodied mystery that sometimes the question, what is this, really points to when we let it drop into awareness and ripple outwards. For me, what, what emerges sometimes when I ask that question is lightness, is joy, is awe is the mystery that we are here at all. And just before I came in to give this talk, I was in the, the teacher wing and I heard a sound outside. And I, for a while it was just birdsong and then I recognized it. And you know, the kind of uh, would-be triumphant bird watcher recognized it as the song of a great tit. And I noticed that scent, that kind of coalescing around, oh, recognized tick, you know, got that 
Great tip, Birdsong, there it is. It sounds like a squeaky bicycle pump and, you know, these kind of things that I know and the one who knows, the one who knows all of this. And, and then I was thinking, you know, trying to kind of come into, into closer contact with the sound itself without the overlay of, I know what this is and it's like this and it reminds me of that time when... And, uh, so I just try to keep it really simple and get close into the sound and without the overlay, judgment, etc., without the overlay of the story. There was something in that listening as I leant into it that was, it was beyond words really. It was that sense of awe, of being in a body with the capacity at this present time, might not always be here, but just right now, the possibility of listening and of hearing the sound of a bird in the garden. And I was listening to the pattern of the call, and then I realized that there was a conversation going on with another great tit in another part of the garden. I kind of opened out to that. And there was something, you know, if I dwelt with it and stayed with it, there was something that I felt my heart would just open and burst and maybe the tears would come of being close up to that creature, so light. You know, if you ever hold a bird in your hand, the lightness of them, the incredible beauty, the extraordinary song, this little body, making this song that I can hear through the walls, through the windows, calling to another one of its community or maybe just staking out their territory or who knows what. That awe, that mystery that can open up when we start to let go a little bit of what we anticipate, of what we know, of what we think we know. So this exploration of not-self, of the co-arising of what we call self, of Paticca Samuppada, of what is also called emptiness. So it's not, as I understand it, an intellectual thing, although there is much that could be understood on an intellectual level. It really is an embodied sense, an embodied investigation. And this question, what is this, which is a koan that is used in the Son tradition in Korea. What is this? And I hear Martine Batchelor's voice as I, you know, what is this? What is this? Sometimes different answers come. One answer that comes to me in some moments is stardust. Elements here made up like everything in the universe. Elements of hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, etc. It's all we are, everything, everything made of the same elements. And yet, of course, 
you know, here is matter, but, you know, most of the matter in the universe is invisible, a source of the energy not understood, again, this possibility of awe. What is this? Sometimes the answer comes, it's the gut microbiome. <laughs> Two kilograms, bigger than a human brain, trillions of bacteria that research shows can influence everything from mental health and mood to inflammation response. So whatever we are, you know, met with, with the stardust or the gut bacteria or something in between, what we know about our lives is that they will end. We don't know the time, we don't know the place, we don't know how, but we know that whatever this is, it is impermanent and it won't be here forever. So how can this also shape our journey and help us set our compass towards compassion for ourselves, for all beings, towards what brings flourishing, towards what brings wellness? When we let go of stories, when we relinquish fixed views, then we can taste sometimes freedom, unbinding. And of course this doesn't mean that we can't also stand up for justice, for liberation for all and liberation in all the many senses that it can be known as. Why is any of this important? Why? Yes, this journey towards what leads us onwards, towards flourishing, towards wellness in this world in so great a need of wisdom and compassion, of those who are looking beyond the story of self and other. We can see, can't we, how othering on a global scale the immense suffering that causes, whether that is the othering of other species, the othering of the natural world, the othering of those who look different from us. So that's partly why this is important. But also there is a fearlessness that comes, a fearlessness that comes from that investigation, from that looking deeply. And this fearlessness, this courage is important for the big moments of our lives, both the wonderful moments and the terrible moments, that we can really be there as best we can. The moments of being with another's death, the moments of being with our own deaths. <coughs> letting the sorrow, letting the joy move through us meeting them fully, letting them shake us, but not to be captured or pinned to either of them, to be able to let go, which is what we will be asked to do again and again and again in this life. We are of the nature to get sick, to age, to die. And when we deny this, we get into real trouble as a species. 
there's a theory that the fear of death, um, it's called terror management theory, is said to rule our lives and our societies, to cause oppression, immense structural suffering, and of course the othering that we see in so many places. So this fearlessness of letting go, letting go in the moments when it is right, in the moments when there is the support, is a gift, is a gift to our world. So let's take some breaths together, let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.